Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. This is episode number 97 of the Lean Blog Podcast for August 12th, 2010. I have a very uh, interesting guest today, a bit outside of the normal lean world, but I think you find a lot of parallels in his work. Um, our guest is Bob Sutton. He's a professor at Stanford University. He is a well-known author uh, and co-author of a number of books, including The Knowing-Doing Gap, Weird Ideas That Work, uh, most recently the best-selling book The No-A-Hole Rule, which is uh, just a slightly edited title. And today we're going to be talking about his work and his upcoming book due out in September called Good Boss, Bad Boss, How to Be the Best and Learn from the Worst. So I hope you enjoy our discussion. Again, here is Bob Sutton. I was very happy to receive a galley copy of the upcoming book, uh, Good Boss, Bad Boss, that we're going to be talking about today. Bob, thanks for taking time out to join us. Thanks. It's great to talk. So I was wondering if you could start by telling listeners a little bit uh, first about you know, your previous book. Uh, we'll, we'll call it The No A-Holes Rule. Um, maybe what, how you define an A-hole, um, you know, the response you got to the book, and why you chose to follow it up with uh, this book, considering it's not a, you know, a direct sequel. Um, oh, sure, Mark. So the the way I would define somebody who is a, sort of a certified jerk or maybe even a temporary one is, is somebody who um, consistently leaves other people feeling demeaned and de-energized. And, um, and, there's, and there's lots of different ways in which this can happen, everything from direct insults to actually more subtle digs and ignoring people and staring at them. And um, the the reason I got interested in this book on bosses, I, I guess there's two reasons. One is I, I, you know, when I go back and look at the book, um, I've been either studying about or writing about um, management uh, for at least a good 25 years. So I've always been interested in management in various ways. And the second thing is that as I poured through the some 3,000 emails that I got um, in response to the book, um, uh, the, the, the book about jerks, the Noeho rule, um, I realized that sort of the central character in just about all the emails and most of the conversations I had with people was the boss. So it was either somebody had a good boss who was a jerk and wanted to, I mean, a bad boss was a jerk and wanted to get a good boss or somebody who wanted to be a better boss or less of a jerk. And one thing that's also related to that is, that is that I, as I started digging into the conversations, I realized that people not only wanted a boss who wasn't a jerk, they wanted a boss who actually could get stuff done and could mentor them. Um, so this notion of sort of competent and benevolent or a boss who um, both um, helps you perform well and your team perform well, um, but at the same time treats you with dignity, dignity and respect was the theme that I kept seeing over and over again. So I spent you know, since I have the advantage of uh, having probably way too much job security, I spent a couple of years working on this book. Yeah, and, and I like that point that you know, being nice, if you will, uh, might not necessarily mean being effective or being a good boss. And so I was, as I was reading the book, there, it struck me there were a lot of parallels mm-hmm. to what you laid out as a framework for being a quote-unquote good boss and the classic Toyota management approach or the lean mm-hmm. approach. You talk about having respect for people, um, the need to be both competent and benevolent, you know, to, mm-hmm. to drive for results and to be people focused. Um, can you talk about that dual nature and, and maybe why so many people miss out 
You know, it, 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 I mean, it really is interesting because um, it, it, it sort of goes both ways. First of all, where I, I probably came on that from two different places. One, one of my mentors in graduate school um, was a guy named uh, Richard Hackman. He's now at the Harvard Psychology Department. He's an expert on group effectiveness. And that was always kind of a theme in what he did. And then for this book, when I started reading stuff about leadership and sort of leadership in you know, pre-industrial tribes and the like, that was the definition that um, came out sort of over and over again. And, um, it, and, and when I realized um, the kind of group that I would want to be in, the kind of leader I would want to be, to me that embraces both. Because, I mean, you do want somebody competent and you do want somebody with good values. And, and one thing that you said, which is really important, is, is and, and, I, and I don't know the stuff in Lean particularly well. I knew other, know other companies that strive for this. Is, is that situation where people are nice, but they're not competent is really a dangerous place to be in. So in fact, just sort of at this moment, the piece that I've been working on, which hopefully will, it'll appear in uh, Harvard Business Review as a kind of a blog post. It's, it's with a former um, HP executive. This guy's name is Webb McKinney. His last job at HP was implementing the HP Compact merger. So very senior guy. And he was there about 30 years. And so what, what the post we're working on sort of says as well, um, if, if you look back at sort of the good old days at Hewlett and Packard sort of in its prime, which ideas could you apply to other companies for, for them to be effective? And then, and then we were talking, we said we should also talk about the downside. And the downside um, is very consistent with this notion that at times they were such a nice and supportive culture that sometimes people who were incompetent but um, were nice, they had a lot of trouble dealing with in terms of getting rid of them, giving them negative performance um, reviews, and that was sort of the Achilles heel or the, the biggest problem um, with the culture. Oh, the culture was generally functional, but it was a problem and, and, and caused resentment. Yeah, I mean, people have always described to me the, the Toyota notion of respect for people. It's more complex than just being nice. It includes things oh, yeah. like challenging people to perform to their peak ability. And one, one thing you wrote about, and you talk about other companies, um, Intel came to mind. I know a lot of people who work at Intel. And you, in your book, you talk about the right way to fight. Intel has right. an expression called um, uh, constructive conflict. Right. Can, can you talk um, a little bit about what you what you see and what you write about is the, well, the right way to fight and why that's helpful? Well, well, first of all, Intel is interesting because I still think they're the only company I know of that um, trains 100% of new employees in um, constructive conflict. So that's kind of cool. And this, and 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 by constructive conflict, where this really comes from for me initially is an academic literature on um, conflict in groups, which shows essentially, especially for creative work, the most effective teams fight in an atmosphere of mutual respect, mm -hmm. and the worst teams fight because they hate each other, and then if you're in between in conflict, you don't really fight at all, then you're not as effective. So this notion in creative work, you've got to teach uh, people how to fight, so this idea of uh, fighting as if you're right and listening as if you're wrong is a key element, and probably... I guess the guy I've met who is most into this, and you can even see video of it, is uh, is Brad Bird, who uh, was the, the Academy Award-winning director of both The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Mm -hmm. And 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 I was just looking at them again the other day. If you look at the extra materials on on The Incredibles DVDs, there's actually some great arguments and fights. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, um, including there's, there's a great fight between him and sort of like the, the, he was the director and, and, uh, about money, about how much money they should spend and schedule. And Brad Bird was, I wanted to, it, what was it? The guy was saying, we've got to get you across the finish line. And Brad Bird was saying, I want to get across the finish line first. And this was sort of great conflict. And, uh, and so that's a guy who is really constructive about in his team and talking with him and other people who work with him, sort of famous for that so uh, but it's it's a difficult thing managerial skill to learn it's not something people aren't always necessarily good at now, so, changing changing directions a little bit I mean one thing sure. organizations um, maybe also are often not good at is accepting uh, failure and and being able oh. to learn from that and one thing you talk about in the book that um, again reminds me of of lean and and the continuous improvement cycles um, mm-hmm. is this need for psychological safety to be able to fail and learn. Can you talk about why that's important, how a good boss can enable, uh, encourage that, or how a bad boss might stifle? Boy, well, well, you, I think, know a lot more about the lean stuff than I do, but in terms of identifying mistakes, reporting mistakes, I, I mean, I think that's one of the great things that lean has done. And, in fact, um one of the places where I really think that the lean um, lean sort of approach has been very constructive on failures is in hospitals. Um, and, and there's some emerging research about this, that the best hospitals are ones where people openly discuss failure. They have this saying, forgive and remember, which we steal in the book, that you forgive people for making mistakes and you remember so people can learn. And you also remember because if they keep making mistakes, you can get rid of them. And and I, I really I, – I actually – yeah, on a personal note, um, about four months ago, I had like a major like heart surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and I and, and they've been really leaned heavily by uh, a bunch of groups, and I was very impressed with their commitment to like if something went wrong, immediately dealing with it, talking about it openly, making it safe for people to talk about it, right. and um, and and there was just sort of this lack of fear that you could just feel in the place that was very impressive. Now, I remember you on your blog writing about um, your, your experiences of the Cleveland Clinic, and you may be aware yeah. they, they've hired some people uh, from Ford and, and other manufacturing companies yeah. to come in to teach um, this management system. I'm glad to hear you had um, that. You had a, a, it sounds like a good, a positive um, vibe about the culture. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Oh, I, I, the, the, the degree to which. Um, and, and having dealt with other hospitals I won't name, the degree to which it was not a fear-based place in the degree to which you could, so, you could sort of feel that people would talk openly about mistakes and problems was, was very impressive. And, uh, and so, it, so, I mean, one thing also that's consistent with the quality movement, um, is this, I mean, they, they'd all wear these buttons that said, uh, patients first and actually mean it. I think in, in many hospitals I've been involved with, it's either money first or my research career first, but they really did not act like that. And, 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 and so there was a sense of, of collective learning that was a big part of it. I didn't know that they had, uh, brought in, uh, uh, quality people, but, uh, but, and I've been in companies where there's a quality movement where you sort of feel like it's just sort of pushed to the side or um, there's cynicism about it. But I, I did not have that sense there at all. I think it was really helping the process there. Very, very well-ran place and, and quite compassionate place, too. So it wasn't just sort of like – my big concern would be like a, a heartless factory, but I would say it was a compassionate factory. Right, right. Well, that's, that's good to hear, and I think that's certainly the goal of um, – not to get too sidetracked on this, but the leading lean organizations start with the sense of – of purpose and in healthcare, uh, a big part of that purpose is a, a caring environment and yeah. helping enable that um, through um, the lean approach. 
I was very impressed. So um, you mentioned emerging research, and you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, do you think there's some hope? Um, you know, healthcare talks about evidence-based medicine. Right. Um, you write about, and, and Daniel Pink, um, who another author I really like, right, you, you mentioned this phrase evidence-based management, where right. maybe there is emerging research in, in psychology or, or management science, evidence about what works with people, what doesn't work. Right. Are you confident that we can move beyond managers kind of using the tribal knowledge or winging it and using research to drive how they manage? That's a great question. So I don't know whether you know, but in, I guess, 2006, my um, co-author, co Jeff Effer, and I published a book called Hard Facts on Evidence-Based Management. And I actually spent about, I, spent, I think I spent five work, years working on that darn book. So I spent a lot of time talking about it. And and so, so my perspective on evidence-based management is it's actually, it's funny reasoning the medical analogy in some ways similar that, that I do believe, and I can show you examples, uh, that, um, that bosses who sort of look at what works best in other places, um, can adopt it and make better decisions. I mean, um, what, one of the things that, uh, that just, I mean, just as an example, let's just take the notion that there's pretty good evidence that organizations that have um, simpler, simple strategies are more effective than those that have complex strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's not that hard for people um, to implement. And um, but but the other part about this, and you're talking about the tribal knowledge, I like that. I, I also think that uh, being a manager is not something you could you could have somebody who consulted and gave people advice about the absolute best way to to do everything based on, on peer reviewed studies. Mm-hmm. But if if the person had not mastered the art of um, of of essentially doing um, of essentially um, practicing the craft and putting it into um, practice, they're just as useless or worse than a novice. Mm-hmm. So. So the way I would describe management at its best, and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of like some really quite sharp managers. Some of the folks at Intuit have impressed me in particular, like Scott Cook, one of the founders, or Brad Smith, who's now head of it. And, um, and, 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 and they practice in a way that I would sort of describe as kind of like an evidence-based craft. Which is right. that you, which is the evidence guides you, but there's a point where human judgment and experience cannot, um, ca- cannot be, um, you know, sort of like replaced. So, so, so that's, that's I think the direction I would hope that management, um, could go would be, would be to be more of an evidence-based craft. Well, and again, there's, there, uh, sometimes striking parallels with, uh, what medical professionals, uh, mm-hmm. doctors will say that you're trying to figure out, as a profession, the balance between art and science. Right. And, and, and in fact, I think that's exactly the same sort of things. But there's also certain things that you know um, about medicine. I mean, just for example, one of the most robust findings, which I think is also um, related to management, is is that the more times that a doctor in a hospital has done an operation, the less they screw up. This is one of the most well-documented findings. Uh, that's the kind of thing that should influence everybody's decision. It's, it's just not that complicated. But, but there's other things like how things look and how things feel. Uh, in, in those cases, it's just not replaceable by with pictures or anything else. You have to have gone through it. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Like, like mergers are a great example. Like, there's some people who are actually pretty good at. Um, implementing mergers in some in some firms and some that are pretty bad but uh, having gone through it I mean Cisco um, during the dot-com boom was incredibly good at uh, buying companies and integrate them integrating them and, and they're, they're still actually pretty good at it and one reason was they simply had done so many 
So I don't think there's any um, like um, substitute for experience. And remembering what you learned, of course, consistent with the quality movement. Yeah. Um, one, one other phrase, that, I, mean, I think uh, kind of a, a clever, memorable phrase in the book, you, you talked about the need for bosses to be on the lookout for what you called uh, downers, deadbeats, and a-holes. Um, can, can you tell the listeners a little bit uh, uh-huh. what's behind that? Sure. So, so where this comes from, uh, the, the basis of it is is um, some research, especially summarized in an article. I love this. You, know, you always think of academic articles having you know really complicated titles. The article, this title is of this. Um, the name of this article is "Bad is Stronger Than Good," and it's in the most prestigious psychology journal. And and essentially, what it shows is negative people, negative interactions, um, pack a much bigger wallop, perhaps five, six times more wallop than positive ones. And then you go over to the more the management literature, and the key guy here is a guy named Will, Will Phelps, who did some research on what he called bad apples or rotten apples on, in the effective group effectiveness. And, and essentially, when you've got somebody in your group who is lazy, is a jerk, or is depressive, the evidence is that it brings down performance um, by about 30 to 40 percent and um, has a much much stronger wallop than if you just brought in, say, sort of like a star, and the stars aren't able to o- overcome the effect of having somebody who is a um, who is a jerk or one of these other rotten apples. And um, and there's two reasons. One is simply um, the fact that when you've got somebody like that in your group, they're just distracting. You know, you're always having to deal with them. It's like the definition of a high maintenance group member. And the second thing, which is in some ways even worse, is there's all this evidence that you know negative emotions, um, negative behaviors are more contagious than positive ones. So it's sort of like this contagious thing that you've got to contain and get rid of because everybody gets it. And and so uh, so I actually think that it's quite interesting and 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 it's not like I'm opposed to hiring the best employees you possibly can but I guess now that we're talking about the the quality movement it's sort of like the defects approach right <laughs> I mean you kind of got to get rid of them and I actually never made this connection till now but uh, there was this great line and this was in our book on evidence based management. Um, um, hard facts where um, we quoted a guy named James March who's arguably the most prestigious living organizational theorist in the academic world. He actually came fairly close to winning the Nobel Prize last time and, and his perspective is that um, that managers are kind of like light bulbs. You have to find one that works. <laughs> And what you what and although there's some differences between the great managers and the good managers, if you look at the studies and actually there's there's got a lot of evidence to support this, there isn't really that much difference. Um, but where you really notice is when you have one that's defective, and that's and then you kind of got to get rid of them. And I, and I, it in, in, in the rotten apple stuff, although not quite that extreme, that extreme, but it, it sort of gets you there. And 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 in terms of being a boss, I think that a lot of what bosses need to do, and this is I think very evidence based perspective, is although, you know, focusing on the superstars and greatness and all that stuff feels great to say. If you can just stop doing lousy things and uh, either reform or get rid of lousy people, it looks to me like uh, that's probably more important than you know, um, you know, than than um, than you know, striving for greatness. So that what is it? Instead of good to great, it, it, it's not very exciting to say how to stay good, mm-hmm. but uh, that might be the key to success <laughs> rather than striving for greatness at all times. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, I'm thinking of like the organizations I like, like. Uh, 
you know, Southwest Airlines is sort of a, a good example. They, they spent their entire time just trying to do a bunch of things reasonably well without doing anything absolutely spectacular, you know? Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's, it, and Toyota until recently, and hopefully they're turning around is another example. Yeah, and it seems that Southwest and, and maybe JetBlue to some extent have put a really big focus on hiring for attitude. So maybe they're yeah. trying to filter out the a-holes, if you will, from the get-go. Oh, yeah, especially – I actually know um, two former heads of HR at uh, Southwest, um, and um, Ann Rhodes is one of them, and um, absolutely that uh, – let me start to the other ones. That, that is was absolutely the sort of, the sort of um, notion that they screen – um, they screen people, they screen out jerks. There's some organizations that, that, that don't do that, um, as aggressively. Um, I'm, one of them actually that, that I was impressed with since I always had such a negative view of them until I got to know them. But, um, you know, McKinsey, the, the consulting firm is, if, if you're a selfish solo, um, player, they really have like no tolerance for that at all. I actually have been pretty impressed by that in terms of getting to know them because the only way that knowledge can spread across you know, such a large, um, it, you know, it's a large distributed organization that's doing projects all over the world at all time. Is if you're selfish, it just doesn't work very well. So, so I, I've been uh, pretty impressed with their their in intolerance, in polite intolerance, being a, a polite firm for for people who aren't cooperative and the like. Okay, and well, and one other question I want to ask you: There were a lot of really uh, interesting ideas in the book, and um, happy to recommend it. Um, to people, but something that was just in the news um, a couple of days ago, and I noticed mm-hmm. you blogged about it. Uh, you mentioned AP, HP earlier, so it just begs the question of you know Mark right. Mark Hurd, the uh, the now deposed CEO, was known as you know a boring numbers guy. Was right. he really? Was he a closet a hole? <laughs> well, so here's so so let me tell you my story about about Mark, and I and I have to I I blogged about this, so I um. So, so the question of how closet he was remains to be seen. So, um, so anyway, so I did a post which will appear in Harvard Business Review in a couple of days um, on management versus leadership, mm-hmm. and and so I said in it, um, apparently somewhat naively, that um, well. Um, an interesting case is Hewlett Packard because Carly Farina probably rightly claim so claims that she got the strategy right, um, but um, all Mark Hurd has been doing is implementing it. But I think she's short shrifting that, and so I I sort of um, pointed out, and, and then I, I I just sent the post to um, some you know well connected Silicon Valley insiders just to check accuracy and stuff like that because they know a lot more about HP than I do in particular, and and um, both of them wrote back and independently that and this was probably about a week ago so this is like it, so it was announced on friday so it was about four days before the the herd scandal was announced she said or, or not she one was a woman one was the other was a man mm-hmm. they they both said you really don't want to write something where you think something nice about mark herd um um you know, I have it on very good authority that he's he's quite abusive, and then he's producing these people they call mini marks who are just as bad. And and this was not on cutting costs. I mean, there's lots of organizations. I mean, Walmart. You know, for all the complaints about Walmart, Walmart's actually a very civilized place to work. I, you meet the Walmart so senior executives are just really very polite people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they might be tight, tough to negotiate with, but they treat yeah. people with respect. And, um, and so, um, so, and so I actually changed the post and took out any reference to HP oh. and then, and then boom, you know, this thing comes out four days 
later. And then the post I said is, you know, sometimes assholes get their just desserts or something was what one of the people wrote back to me. But I, I actually hadn't, even though what, I'm sitting four miles, three miles right now from HP headquarters, um, I just haven't had that much to do with them, especially since, uh, since Carly left. So I don't know what HP really is now, but I was just sort of stunned. I just thought that what I was saying was perfectly reasonable looking at yeah. the stock performance. Well, and I mean, it sounds like a situation where if he was uh, abusive and, and uh, you know, uh, that type of person, that if the stock price was good and the business results were good, a lot of companies and organizations are willing to look past some right. bad boss behavior if the results yeah. are good, right? Yeah, it's, uh, and, 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 and I think that's absolutely true. And I think um, it's, it's also uh, the, the argument that I made in the Noejo rule is that if, and I know very little about them, so this may not apply. I want to be careful. This, these aren't even allegations. It's speculations. But, but if you're um, an a-hole, um, you better keep performing well and doing things right because your enemies are lying in wait to get you. And that's, I mean, that even happened to, you know, Jobs years ago um, when they, when they um, kicked him out of Apple. Although Jobs is, um, at least um, all signs are, has actually gotten better in his old age. He's gotten a little bit more civilized and is surrounded by people who help offset his weaknesses. So he's actually gotten a little bit better with that kind of stuff from what we can tell. Thanks for sharing uh, your perspectives there, and, and, and thank you for talking about the book. Our, our guest again has been uh, Bob Sutton, author of the uh, soon-to-be upcoming book, Good, Bo- Good Boss, Bad Boss, How to Be the Best and Learn from the Worst. And, and Bob, just as a final thought, if you can um, remind people of when the book could be available and where they can find oh, you. Thanks, and Mark. Where they can find you and your blog online. Certainly. Oh, sure. So the, the book is going to be out – and in about three weeks or so, it'll be um, shipping, even though it, in theory it comes out September 7th, so a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And my blog is called Work Matters, and it's at bobsutton.net. And um, I, I, I'm, I seem to be willing to blog about virtually anything that will get me in trouble or not. So uh, <laughs> stop by and leave a comment. So thanks so much, Mark. Okay. Thank you, Bob. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.